Continue to pray for me during the sermon. I've been sick all week, and uh, obviously, as you can hear in my voice, so we just obviously go to the Lord and ask Him to help, because it's not by my power, it's not by any of our power, it's by His, right? So we trust in the Lord. And so this morning, it's wonderful to be before you. Um, pray for Kaiki and, and his family. They also woke up this morning feeling not well, so that's why they're not here. Uh, so I'm solo this morning, but continue to pray because the Lord is, is doing a good thing. He's doing a good work, but it's wonderful to be here. And if you're, if you're new here this morning, I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're, we're so grateful that you, you joined us. And maybe if you've come this morning, whether you're new or not, and, and you feel burdened, um, we have a connection card on the welcome table before you go out the door. Uh, please take some time to fill that out. Uh, we want to pray for you. We want to connect with you. So please feel free to, to do that. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that you find a home here at Faith like many of us have. But anyways, church, it's been a, a wonderful series that we've been walking through, slowly walking through the book of Nehemiah together. And I don't know about you, but it's been very edifying to me and very helpful for being able to understand how God wants to build his kingdom. Right, how he wants to build a people, how he wants to build the church. And these last couple of weeks, Matt and Kaiki have talked to us about the, the fear of God, but also the fear of man. And uh, I don't know about you, but there are plenty of tactics employed by the evil one every day. But one of the hardest to, to be prepared for is actually the fear of man. <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced this in your life. I, I can't tell you how many uh, witnessing opportunities I've missed. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've shrunk back from speaking the truth because of fear. Because of uh, what, what will they think of me? What if my friendship with them goes sour? I've built this relationship with them for so long. What if I tell them about Jesus? And they just walk and they leave. There's, there's fear, right? And it comes up within us in community groups. We talked about this last week. And I know for a lot of us, that was one of the main areas that we felt challenged by. Was why, why are we so compelled by fear? But Kaiki uh, last week displayed for us, beautifully I might add, that we have a king, that we serve a king who has conquered and has overcome our enemy who keeps us in fear. Amen to that, right? Praise God. And so we can rightly look to Jesus in all of our moments when we're tempted to fear those around us and remember that he's really the one that we should fear. See, that the fear of God drove Nehemiah. The fear of God controlled Nehemiah. He knew the, the right one to look to and to honor and to revere, not, not those around him, not his enemies, not even the people in his own camp, but he looked to the Lord. He looked to Jesus, who's the real king in Judah. And this morning, we're going to look to the last part of the chapter of chapter 6 and the first few verses of chapter 7. And we're just going to see, we're going to continue beyond this point of, of of fear. And we're going to see how in God's way and in God's time, God uses unassuming things to build his kingdom. 
And so let's go to our text this morning. We'll be in in chapter 6, verses 15 through 7, verse 4. So please turn there in your Bibles. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Lul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. For the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word this morning would speak even though my voice may fail and my mind may may not have comprehended correctly, but I pray that your word would speak. Lord, I offer this time over to you, whether coherently or incoherently, I pray by your spirit it would be perceived and received and implanted. So Lord, would you come and have your way this morning with us Would you receive all the glory? I pray this in your name. Amen. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Lul in just 52 days. Hallelujah. We should rejoice, right? This is what we've been waiting for, church, right? The wall is finished. It's only six chapters in of a 13-chapter book, so they got it done in record time. I mean, it took us longer to get to this moment in preaching than it did for them to build the entire thing. See, this is the thing that Nehemiah sought out to do. It's, It's accomplished. But all we get is one sentence in the text referring to this. And I wondered about that. That was a question I asked, is why just one sentence? And as I thought, I think it's because, you know, a short statement can carry more weight than a thousand empty statements ever could, right? You ever feel that sometimes? And as we've been reading, this comes in the midst of a lot of empty words, empty threats, gossip, lies, empty words that surround Nehemiah and the wall and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I mean, remember these past couple of weeks in the throes 
of, of warfare. The enemies of Nehemiah attempted to spread rumors. They called him out to, to do harm against him, right? They said that he wants to be king in Judah. They threaten him. Why, why are they doing this? Well, it's to thwart the plan of God. The enemies of Israel, the enemies of the Jews wanted to stomp out Jerusalem. They didn't want Jerusalem to rise. And so they needed to take Nehemiah out. They needed the wall to stop. And we have to remember this, that, that any attack on the people of God is, attack, is an attack on God himself. And so without knowing it, or, or maybe they did, deliberately knew that they were attacking and opposing God. But as they were opposing God's people, they were also opposing God himself. And now with confidence, Nehemiah proclaims the truth, not in a general way, it's done, but specifically, he notes the exact date that it was accomplished. He notes his exact date that, it was a vi- that he was victorious, and he tells the nations around him, put it in your calendars. Because what we came here to do, what you sought to stop, has been accomplished. And so what was their response? Verse 16, it says, And when all their enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They perceived correctly. See, the enemies of God and his people will rage and they'll cause harm all the way up until the day they see that they've lost. See, the pompous arrogance of the nations surrounding Jerusalem in this moment crumbled. Their confidence wasted away at the sight of the victory of the people of God. See, the enemies who once laughed at the shame of Judah, who ridiculed their weak efforts, Now they are the ones who are in shame. They are now in the place of mockery. You know, I think this gives us a a quick lesson on humility. If you want to be humbled real quick, oppose the work of God. Because God will always humble the prideful. And it's here that we also see the real intentions of one of Nehemiah's enemies. And so let's, let's look here and Verse 17, it says, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Oh, Tobiah's back. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Tobiah the Ammonite, who's now revealed to be married into the Judean aristocracy, he continues to put up a futile fight against Nehemiah. But he puts up a fight against Nehemiah, and that's that's an interesting thing for us to note. He doesn't just oppose the whole enterprise of building and rebuilding the wall like Sanballat or Jeshem. But he wants Nehemiah specifically. Although his attempts are futile, right, at first with an appeal to his character, which, I mean, we know to be more than likely false appeal. And when Nehemiah doesn't fall for the recommendations from the nobles who are bound to him, 
he turns to a more direct approach of intimidation. And although we don't have a resolution of this letter sending, I think it's safe to say that Nehemiah remained steadfast and he didn't pay any attention to to Tobiah. But the question still remains, why is Tobiah going through all the trouble to intimidate Nehemiah? He's clearly lost. The wall is done. Yahweh has helped them succeed. So why keep pressing? And it's interesting because this is the last we hear of Tobiah until the end of the book in chapter 13. But we don't really hear of any of the other enemies that were mentioned in chapter 2. They kind of disappear in the story. They fall to the background. I think the clue is, is in the text. It says that he's the son-in-law, the son of Era, and his son is married to Meshulam. They're both probably nobles. Later on in the book, we find out that he's also related to Eliashib, who's the high priest. Tobiah, he's positioning himself among the movers and shakers of Judean life. He probably wants a piece of the pie, if not the whole thing. Tobiah is not interested in the ruin of Jerusalem. He's trying to be king in Judah. He wants to be in the position of power. And as he has the loyalty of the nobles, right? That's where the money is. But he also has the loyalty of Eliashib, the leader of the worship of the people of God. He had all that was needed to rise to power in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is just in his way. And see, this goes back to the last week where the enemies gave false accusation against Nehemiah that he wanted power. But here it shows us who is really looking for power. And maybe it's not just Tobiah who wants to have the power, possibly the nobles. But as we read a chapter earlier, it's clear in their actions towards their brothers how much they actually care about doing the will of God, following the law of God. We see the hearts of all those involved, right? And we know it's the heart that's opposed to God that will suffer disrepute, right? And so Nehemiah answers the question, and Nehemiah answers the question, this this prompts in us. So if Nehemiah isn't claiming the power in Jerusalem, and Tobiah isn't going to get it, then who will receive it? As we see, in proper contrast to Tobiah, the the power-hungry, corrupt politician, verse 2 of chapter 7 comes in. It says, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hanani, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. You know, Tobiah may have believed that Nehemiah wanted to be king in, in Judah. Maybe he did. But this passage, I think, clears up any doubt, shows us the heart of Nehemiah, that he isn't here for recognition or for power, but he's here because God gave him a burden and God placed a call on him to build God's kingdom. God placed a call on his life to do more than he thought he would ever do. And Nehemiah doesn't just pass it off haphazardly either. 
Because Nehemiah knows that he needs to go back to Susa. He bestows leadership on someone or two people in particular who are faithful and who feared God more than many. See, if there's anyone who we want to take over in leadership, it's these guys, right? They're faithful and they fear God. And that should sound familiar, right? It sounds like Nehemiah. Nehemiah saw the qualities in them that are needed for godly leadership. And he says, I want you two to take over. I will be gone one day, and I want you to be the exemplars. I want you to be the leaders of the people because someone needs to carry on the work after Nehemiah is gone. But Nehemiah doesn't just bestow the leadership on them. He's prudent. He's wise. And he understands how vulnerable Jerusalem is, and so he instructs them on how to keep the city protected. In verse 3, it says, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. See, if we know anything about, from the book of Nehemiah, it's that the enemies of Judah will always continue to fight against them, right? And how, how much more are they going to contend against them after Nehemiah is gone? And so Nehemiah needs to appoint people to protect and to defend the, the city and the people. There's a verse I skipped over earlier that I wanted to bring up here, and that's verse 1. It says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I think this is an important verse because it shows us the nature of guarding the city. See, Nehemiah wanted to set up Levites and singers. But who are, Levite? who are the Levites and who are the singers? These are, these are people who serve in the liturgy and worship of Israel. They're not warriors to be put on the wall. They're worshipers to be kept in the temple mount. They belong in the temple. So why are they set up to defend the city? Well, first... Levites were meant to defend the temple from intruders. That was a part of their job, to defend the temple. So this could be why he names them as part of the defense, to somebody needs to guard the temple. But I wonder if it, what's also meant when he mentions the singers, because I think singers are the odd one here. He mentions the singers is, is a similar idea to Second Chronicles 20, where King Jehoshaphat, as he placed the singers in, in front of his army, as they were about to be attacked by a larger force to come and overwhelm them. And as he did, and they blew their trumpets and they started to sing, the people of God won. They thwarted the attack of the enemy. Before you kind of write that off as being really weird, uh, as a weird connection. But who is Jehoshaphat defending against? He's defending against the Ammonites and the Moabites. These are the two people that we've run into throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah the Ammonite. And in chapter 13, it tells us specifically to keep Ammonites and Moabites out of the assembly of the people of God. Nehemiah might just be simply reminding the Ammonites and the, and the Moabites of what happened before. 
when they came against Judah and that Nehemiah is preparing for round two. Maybe that was a weird connection. You could forget it. But it was one that came up for me. So either way, Nehemiah sets up the city to defend itself. And he encourages Hananiah and Hananiah to appoint guards at their posts or in front of their homes. And this should sound familiar. And back in chapter 3, we know that Nehemiah set people to build the wall in front of their homes. That's a motivating factor for them. You want to make sure that your home is protected? Build the wall in front of your house and make sure that bad boy is tough. And so now he's saying, put the guards in front of their homes and they'll guard the city all the more. See, Nehemiah is wise. He's prudent. He's not just leaving Jerusalem to ruin. He's leaving Jerusalem in good hands and he's preparing them for a battle that might come, that probably will come. So we know all, the, all about the walls. We know all about that's outside of the walls, the enemies of the people of God. The whole book up until this point revolves around both of those things. But here, in verse 4, Nehemiah clues us in with what's inside the walls. What does the inside look like? And it's kind of an odd addendum to, to this part of chapter 7. It says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. It's kind of an odd phrase for Nehemiah to just throw in there, isn't it? And at first glance, <clears throat> it looks debilitating, doesn't it? It's kind of a downer. It's a sad thing to say. All of that work for nothing. We just built this entire wall, and there's nobody who lives in the city. We built this huge wall, nonetheless. And nobody is here. It's kind of sad. But I think... But I don't think this is why Nehemiah wrote this part. I don't think it's meant to be disheartening. I think it's meant to be a cry to return. Nehemiah is saying, look, the city is ready for you to come, so now return from the exile and return to the kingdom. And looking at it, it's almost set up as if it's recapitulating the entrance into the promised land for the first time. It talks about the land being wide and large, which is usually a very positive thing to say. It's ready to be taken. The, the conquering has been done. And instead of tearing down a wall, like at Jericho, they've built one. And now it's time to come and to take possession and what follows this verse is a census of the people. That's what they do before they enter the promised land. They take a census of all of Israel before they take their possession, their inheritance. See, this is a conquering of the land, and Nehemiah is saying, let's now take our inheritance. This is the new people of God coming back to the kingdom. And it's important that people come back to take the land, Right? Why is it important? Because as we've been saying throughout this entire series, is the book of Nehemiah really about the wall? No. I, just, I said earlier, the wall is finished in chapter 6. It's got 13 chapters. It takes up a very small portion of the entire book. It's not about the wall. 
It's about building a people. And God wants to build a people. And this, as we'll see, never really happens. The Jews never return to the land, as we see in the New Testament. They remain scattered amongst the nations. So Nehemiah is saying, the wall is finished, now bring in the people. But the people don't heed that advice. They don't come. So here we are, church. The wall has been built. It's complete. The call has gone out to populate the city. So what what does this mean for us? What does it mean for Faith Baptist today? (coughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. This is why we have sermon titles. If there's anything that sticks out to me when I read the book of Nehemiah, it's the fact that this whole book is all about God. It's God's way and God's time. And it's all for God's glory. It's on every page of the book of Nehemiah. It's on the whole page of the, every page of the Bible. But here in Nehemiah, it shows us so clearly that it's God's way and God's time for God's glory. See, Nehemiah, at the very beginning, is burdened and called by God at a time he was least expecting it, right? He's just in, in, the, in Susa, which is the capital city. He's, just, he's not expecting to hear from his friend that, Israel, that Judah is dismantled and destroyed. But what does he do? He responds in, in prayer. And for months he prays and he seeks the Lord. And finally, after four months, the answer to the prayer has come. See, that's God's way and God's time, isn't it? And then Nehemiah has to travel 900 miles to Jerusalem. I think Kaiki told us it probably took him about three months. He's in anguish, wanting to get to see the people that he loves. And what does he see when he gets there? He sees opposition. And when he inspects, he sees a destroyed city, a dismantled city. How impossible is it going to be to rebuild the wall? But that's God's way and God's time. And now with the enemies of Judah pressing in on all sides, what do the people have to do? They have to, to build with shovels in one hand and swords in the other. But then after a month and a half of building, just a month and a half, they've proven to their adversaries that God was on our side and he finished the wall. See, that's God's way and God's time. And all of this is for God's glory. You know, sometimes I think we get our wires crossed when it comes to God's will versus our will, right? We desire holiness. And all of us desire holiness, don't we? And we pray for holiness, but we desire holiness, but through comfort. When God wants the opposite. We desire success and maybe business. We desire success in our work, in our relationships, within our family maybe a a prospective spouse. We desire success in ministry, you name it. We pray for it, but if we're honest, we want it the way we want it and not the way he wants it. And if you're really honest, you want it right now, right? How often is that true within my own heart? We cross these wires all of the time. But if the book of Nehemiah shows us anything, it's that God is sovereign, is he not? God is behind every ounce of, this, of these pages. God's good hand is upon me. 
God will make us prosper. They perceived that God helped them build the wall. God is behind it all. And he orchestrates everything for his glory. But it's in his own way and in his own time. And we see in the first few verses how God works in history. See, Nehemiah marks these dates. They're not arbitrary numbers. They're not arbitrary dates. These are, these are real moments where God stamped his name on something and everybody recognized it. You ever have those moments in your life where God stamped his name on something? You say, wow, God did that. See, all of us have these in our, in our minds, these dates that are imprinted. Mine, December 8, 2011, at roughly 8 p.m., That's where God broke into my room and met me in one of the darkest moments of my life. And I said yes to him. And I made him the Lord of my life for the very first time. See, that's God's time and God's way. Could have happened when I was younger. Could have happened when I was older. But God chose that moment in that way, at that time. See, Nehemiah writes it down. He says, this is the moment where God showed us his hand. I mean, he knew about it all along, but he wanted everybody to see it. These dates are imprinted on our minds. But what we understand from Nehemiah is that when we get down to business to do God's work his way and on his timeline, we're always going to face opposition, aren't we? And it's here in the text. I think the silence of Nehemiah speaks louder than the words of the nobles or even the letters of Tobiah himself. See, Nehemiah recognizes God has just accomplished something that many considered impossible. And Tobiah is just here trying to oppose God. You know, I think sometimes silence speaks more than arrogant words ever could. See, God's word can speak for itself. And I'm not saying to always be silent. What do we see up until this point? Nehemiah speaks. Later on, we're going to see Nehemiah doesn't speak, but he acts. Here we see Nehemiah, he doesn't say anything. He's silent because he knows what God just did. He doesn't need to give another, another inch to Tobiah. We let the work of God speak for itself. And when we see God do the impossible and the people still press against us, well, we just let them make the mistake of opposing God. We just need to cling to the one who does the impossible. And that's where our confidence comes from. See, we all have an enemy. It's not Tobiah the Ammonite. Although maybe some of you have friends who remind you of Tobiah but we have an enemy who's more insidious and dangerous. See, Peter calls him a roaring lion. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And one thing for certain is that he wants to destroy the work of God in you and in me. He wants to destroy the work of God in us. And the good news is that those who oppose God's work are sure to lose. But my question for us is, do you believe that this morning? 
See, for a lot of us, there are lies that creep in. Some come from truths, and they use those truths, and they turn them into half-truths or, or even total lies, but yet we still believe them. And those truths could be anything, and they could come at us at any moment. They could be how you raised your kids, how you acted in college, how you treated your spouse when you were, when you were angry. Maybe how you had a few too many drinks that one time 20 years ago, you name it. They could creep in at any moment. And the problem isn't the lie itself. We know, we know it's silly. Oh, I haven't thought about that in many years. Why did that just get brought up in my mind? The problem isn't seeing it. The problem is that we try to reason with it. We try to converse with it. See, Nehemiah could have reasoned with the nobles about their empty niceties, about Tobiah. I mean, Nehemiah could have gone to Tobiah and reasoned with him about his empty threats. But that would have gotten nowhere and only would have escalated the issue, right? When those lies come, reasoning with it is like reasoning with a two-year-old. You can't. It only gets worse. But what does Nehemiah do here? He lets the work and glory of God loom larger in his mind than the empty lies of his enemies. Brothers and sisters, when you feel tempted by one of those lies or feel tempted in any way, let God's glory and his impossible work enfold you and enthrall you. See, Nehemiah has been obsessed with God and his glory this entire time. At every place there is opposition. Nehemiah was rooted in the Lord. He placed everything on God's shoulders. God loomed large in the imagination of Nehemiah. And do we have a big God in our imagination or do we have a small one? Because our problem isn't that we expect too much from God and don't get it. It's that we expect he can't do anything, and so we take it upon ourselves and we fail. And then we still blame it on him, right? So church, let's stop seeing God as impotent and start seeing him for who he really is. Do we believe that God can do impossible things? in us, through us, around us, in this world? Do you believe that he's already done the impossible in your life? I mean, maybe we need to just start sharing testimony more often. Because sometimes I need to see how big Julia's God is in her life for me to remember how big God is in mine. Sometimes I need to be reminded how big Kaiki's God is in his life to be reminded of how big he actually is. We need the, the work and the testimony of believers around us to show us and to remind us of how awesome and glorious and large our God actually is. And this, this is why Nehemiah, what Nehemiah is doing right here. 
He's ultimately saying at the end of these verses, he's saying, look at how incredibly large, our incredibly large God did the impossible. And so now come and live out of the benefits of that. He's saying, look at the testimony of the wall being built in the midst of impossible standards, and yet it's done. So come. The city is wide and large. Come and build your house here because the work has been finished. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, Nehemiah wasn't really surprised by the finished, finishing of the wall. He wasn't surprised at any of this stuff because he already had a mind that was completely enthralled with God. Because when our minds are captivated by the Lord, his time and his way stop being daunting hurdles to get over and become extensions of his easy yoke. But how should this change the way we live? I just want to give us two practical ways that we can walk from this place. The first is to grow in remembrance. We need to remember. Know what God has done in your life. I want to encourage you this week to, to just sit down and to take a journal and a pen. And I want you to think through every moment in your life from when, as long as you can remember back to yesterday. And I want you to write down the things that you remember looking back and saying, that God did that. How did God work in your life? Yep, God did that too. Or maybe in your family life or those, everything surrounding you. To remember that. And then I want you to let that become the narrative of your life. That God does big things and works for the good of those who love him. You know how we can live into Romans 8, right? That he works for the good of those who love him. If we can remember everything that he's done and that he's right there with us. That's how we can have a God who looms large in our mind and in our life. And Nehemiah knew what God had done. He never forgot that. The next, second thing is to rest in God. We need to learn how to rest in God and what he's done and the work that he's done. And this, this comes to, so that we, we don't give Satan more attention than needed. See, let God's grace be in control of you, not the lie or the work of the enemy. If you've fallen into sin, if it's a sin issue, then let God's grace meet you and heal you. Don't let the words of the enemy meet you. See, Nehemiah had nothing more to say, said Tobiah. The, the word, work of God spoke for itself, and he let that be the dominant narrative. He didn't need to reply, because he knew who God was. He knew what God was doing, and he knew what God had just accomplished. So church, let's, let's learn how to remember more. Let's learn to rest in God in the work that he's accomplished for us. We try to strive too often. We try to just go on it on our own, but we need to rely on the Lord and the Holy Spirit, don't we? And so let's let this be what marks us as a church. To be those who are always remembering always calling each other to remember and to also be ones who rest in the grace and power of Jesus Christ. 
being witnesses to a God who does the impossible. Can you imagine what that would look like if an entire church decided to just let God being who he is, being the controlling narrative of this congregation? How wonderful of a witness that would be. Because our God is a God who does the impossible again and again. See, every time the odds are stacked against him, he shows us who to bet on, doesn't he? Read the Bible cover to cover, and you will see moment after moment of where God was down and out, counted down and out, but he wasn't really down and out. And when he's all alone, he does the fighting himself. But as we close, I want us to remember and to think about one thing in all of this. If it's God's way in God's time, because it's all for God's glory, it means that our own work in the matter is going to actually play a very small role. You know, if you look at it, it took more time waiting and praying than it did actually building, didn't it? It took, what, seven months of praying and waiting and then a month and a half to finish the project. Kind of interesting to see how God does a lot of the heavy lifting, doesn't he? The real work of the kingdom that shows us that the real work of the kingdom is not through power or the, the, a great workforce or ministry strategies. Those things are good things. But that's not the real work of the kingdom. The real work of the kingdom is it's the people of God on their knees waiting and praying. The real work wasn't the building of the wall. It was Nehemiah praying for four months. The real work of building a church is not that we would go and do the thing, but that we would be on our knees waiting and praying to the Lord. See, Jesus teaches us that the only way the kingdom comes is through what? Prayer. It's right in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want the kingdom to come, start praying that. See, God is building his people today. He's not necessarily doing it through great sermons or poor sermons. He's not doing it through amazing worship bands or all these awesome ministries. He's doing it through the faithful crying out to him. This reminds me of a, a story I read a number of years ago. You can find this online. It's about Charles Spurgeon's church in London in the 1800s. There were these several young men. They were college-age men, and they, want, they, were, they were in London, and so they decided, we, we want to go visit Spurgeon's church because we want to hear him in person and not just read his sermons when they come out. And so they went, and they got there nice and early. And as they came in, there was this older gentleman who met them, and he welcomed them, and they said, we're here to see Spurgeon. He says, wonderful, can I show you our furnace first? And the young men were kind of confused. <laughs> they didn't understand, but yet they obliged, they amused him, they said, sure. So they walk to the basement, and they come to this door, and the older man opens the door, and he said, this is what keeps our church heated and ministry going. 
And the young men couldn't believe their eyes as they saw 700 people bowed in prayer, asking God to bring blessing upon the service about to happen. And the, the older man turned to them and he says, nice to meet you, I'm Charles Spurgeon. There's one thing we can learn from this story. It's what's keeping the church going? What keeps the heat on? Is it our hard work? Or is it our bruised knees? So church, we find in this story a church who decided let's give ourselves to the praying and we'll let the Lord do everything else. See, church, the work of bringing the kingdom doesn't consist in powerful words uttered from a stage, but in humble words spoken in prayer. If we want to see God's work on display here at Faith Baptist, we have to recognize his way, and that way is on our knees, is it not? It's in the unassuming things that God decides to bring his kingdom. It's in the small things. And those small things bring great change, doesn't it? So church, may we always be marked by God's way and God's time as we seek God's glory. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you speak to us whatever way we need to hear it this morning. Lord, I recognize that my words mean absolutely nothing up here if they're not yours. So Father, I pray that you would make us a church who remembers, a church who rests in you, and a church who seeks you, your face, on our knees. So come, be with us. And help us. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.